0: So today, we're going to talk about the sixth church of this list. It is the Church of Philadelphia. You might know that Philadelphia means brotherly love, because we have a Philadelphia here in the United States. It means brotherly love, or the lover of the brother. It was named by one brother for his other brother in honor of him, and so it's named that. And I always kind of laugh when I hear that that means Brotherly love, because if you're a sports fan at all, you might know that Philadelphia is not known for its loving attitude towards people as sports fans. In fact, they are known for throwing batteries at people. This is a real shirt that you can go on Amazon and buy right now. Philadelphia, we throw batteries. This is a true story. In 1999, fans of the Philadelphia baseball team were upset with J.D. Drew, who was once drafted by the Phillies but refused to sign with the team and played for the St. Louis Cardinals against them, and they took that as betrayal. So the crowd proceeded to ridicule JD Drew with chants, and some even went as far as to throw batteries at him. Since then, throwing batteries has become somewhat of an urban legend amongst diehard Philly fans, a tradition of sorts. Fans reassured concerned citizens after the Super Bowl run a couple years ago, that they don't throw batteries just for fun. It is a specific uh, purpose, a user-tweeted Duracell battery company to let them know that batteries are used exclusively to pelt players that they hate, not just for fun. That same year, when the Super Bowl run was going on, the city had to grease the lampposts of Philadelphia with Crisco so that people wouldn't climb the lampposts and try to tear them down. It did not stop them from doing it. This is a real picture, greasing Crisco. So Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, not known for their brotherly love of people. Philadelphia in Asia Minor a little more known for their brotherly love, and that's the one that we're going to talk about today. This church is the youngest church of the seven. It is not as ancient as the other churches. It's a fairly young church. It's a fairly small church. It's another church that sits at the juncture of many trade routes, making it prosperous, and it was actually known as the gateway to the east. If you look at that map that we've been looking at that has the different churches on it, you can see that it is one of the most far away churches, and you have to go through there. You can see it there, Philadelphia, far away in the east, and you can go through there to get to the east. So it's a major trade route. The one major problem with Philadelphia is that it was also known as the city of earthquakes. In fact, in the year 17 AD, an earthquake so large came through and it, destroyed all of Philadelphia, destroyed Sardis, which you can see just north of there, and 10 other cities around. It was absolutely destructive to everything. One of the Caesars at the time came in and rebuilt the entire city. And uh, there there were so many people that were still afraid of the earthquakes that they refused to move back into the cities. They stayed out in the country because they felt more secure. I don't know if you've ever been through an earthquake, I was born in Los Angeles, California. I have been through a lot of earthquakes, and it is a very odd feeling when the earth itself just is no longer trustworthy. And I remember the very first time when I was a little kid, and nobody had explained to me that there was a such thing as earthquakes. So I'm like five years old, and all of a sudden the entire world started shaking, and I freaked out a little bit. My grandmother was like, oh, it's just an earthquake. was like, what do you mean just an earthquake? The earth is shaking and and it, it's a very weird feeling and and so they were they were afraid of that and they felt insecure and so that kind of led into the mindset of people who lived in this area Philadelphia also had a lot of temples to false gods religious festivals pagan worship of Dionysus we talked about him before he was the god of wine this was an area because of volcanic uh, activity. There was also a lot of vineyards around there, and so they worshipped that false god. By the 6th century, it was known as Little Athens because it was so similar to the Greek culture. So there's a lot going on in this small town, but it seems that even though all of those things are going on in Philadelphia, the Church of Jesus Christ in Philadelphia was far less influenced by these pagan ways than many of the churches around them. In fact, you'll see in this chapter that Philadelphia is one of only two churches in Revelation that does not receive any sort of rebuke or criticism from Jesus. Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only ones that just have all positive. It's a good church. It's not perfect. They have their struggles. They're made up of sinful people like all churches are. Hopefully they're growing to be more and more like Jesus. But it's a good church, but it's a church full of broken people that are seeking to grow closer to the Lord together. You maybe have heard the old saying, if you find a perfect church, don't go, you'll ruin it. Right? Every church is made up of broken and growing people, and this church is no different. And so let's read. You have your Bibles, your devices. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, who shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. To the one that conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the names of my God, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so break that down. In the very beginning, we have this description of Jesus. As each letter, we have a descriptor of Jesus but in all of the other letters, that description comes from chapter 1. This one actually doesn't. It comes from the Old Testament. And it starts out by saying, Jesus says of himself that he is the Holy One. This is a term used throughout the entire Old Testament, and it refers to God. And it refers to God alone. Jesus using this title for himself is a clear claim that he is divine, that he is God himself. So many times people say, well, Jesus never actually said he was God. He absolutely did. He made that claim. He is either God or he is false. So he says, I am God. I am the Holy One. And for Jesus, holiness means that he is completely unique. He is set apart completely from sin. He is absolute perfection, and he is the standard by which everything else is measured. He says, I am the holy one. And then he says, I am the true one. He is genuine, authentic, and real. In a society like this one, where it has literally hundreds of false gods that people are worshiping, and the Jewish people in the synagogue are claiming that Jesus is a false Messiah, Jesus declares, I am the true one. I am God and I am genuine and I am the Messiah. And then it has this interesting line. He says, The one who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is a reference all the way back to Isaiah chapter 22, if you're an Old Testament person. And way back in Isaiah 22, there's a story about a man named Shebna, And Shebna is the primary steward over the kingdom of Israel at the time under King Hezekiah. But they find out that Shebna is using his power for his own resources. He buys property, he cuts himself out, a little piece of property for his tomb. He's using all these resources for his own glory. And so when that's found out, God replaces him with another guy named Eliakim, And when he replaces him with Eliakim, he says that Eliakim will be given the key to the house of David. What this is talking about is that that person, that primary steward of the kingdom is the only one who grants access to the kingdom. The only one who is in charge of who gets into the kingdom and who is not in the kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, I am the doorway to the kingdom of God. I have the key to Of David. There is no other way except for through me. He has complete authority to who is admitted to the kingdom of God. There's probably some sort of connection here also between the Jewish people have excommunicated the Church of Philadelphia from the synagogue. They've said our door is closed to you, and so Jesus is saying the only one who opens and closes doors is me. Right. This is an ongoing thing in Philadelphia. This big tussle between the Jewish church and the Christian church. And so Jesus has the keys. And I just started thinking about that. We're only three chapters in to Revelation, and Jesus has a pretty impressive key ring so far. He has the keys to to death and hell, and now he has the keys to life and eternity. And so you'll see that a lot of time in imagery of Revelation, that Jesus holds the keys because he is the only one through whom all of this goes through. And so after that introduction, we get into kind of the meat of this chunk of Scripture, verses 8 through 11. And in that chunk of Scripture, Jesus makes three incredible promises to this church of Philadelphia. To this small church that has been faithful, and that has not denied him, he makes three incredible promises. First, he says, that they will have an amazing opportunity because of their faithfulness to his word and to his name. Verse 8, again, says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus tells them, even though you're a small church, so you have just a little power, You are going to have a mighty opportunity. You are going to have an open door. And throughout the scriptures, an open door speaks of the chance to minister to the world. So He says you have an open door to the kingdom of God. He says he is with them and that those people will lead others towards the kingdom of God. There's an interesting idea here that that they don't just have an open door of ministry, but that they actually can point people towards the door to the kingdom. That's an amazing thing. Because of their faithfulness, because they have not denied Christ, they have the opportunity to point people to eternity. This is what comes with faithfulness to Jesus. And it's an amazing blessing. The door of the synagogue might be closed to them, but the door to the kingdom of God is open. Secondly, He will give them vindication over those who tried to separate them from him. Verse 9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. There is this serious conflict between the synagogue and the church. They have been excommunicated from fellowship, and the Jews have declared that Jesus was a false messiah and that the church was a false cult. The Jews in Philadelphia believe that because of their national identity and because of their religious heritage, that they were the only true children of God. Paul talks about this in Romans, which we went through a year ago. But Paul says in Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so these people, the Jewish synagogue is saying, because of who we are, our race and our religion, we are true and you are not, they try to separate the people from the love of God. And trust me, you do not want to be the person who is trying to separate God from the people that he loves. If you read through the New Testament, every time that Jesus gets angry and starts flipping tables and stuff like that, it's because somebody is trying to come in between people and him. You don't want to be in that position. And this is where the Jews in the synagogue of Philadelphia find themselves... And Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. It's Pretty rough. But that's exactly what the work of Satan is, is to try to separate people from the love of God. And that's what they're doing. You don't ever want to be in that position. Third, promise. He will keep them from tribulation. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now this is easily the most talked about verse in this section because it begins to talk about the tribulation, which we're going to get a lot more into later on in Revelation. You might be disappointed. I'm not going to dive fully into this today because it's going to be its whole own sermon later. But there's a time later in Revelation where we're going to talk about the great tribulation And it's a time that will come towards the end of the world, a time of ultimate judgment, a time that will end in the establishment of Jesus' eternal kingdom. And so he says in this verse, he's saying to Philadelphia, I will keep you from this trial, this tribulation. And so there's this argument that's been going on, as long as this scripture has been known, what does that actually mean? What does it mean when God says, I will keep you from, and that's what the argument's really about. That little term that doesn't sound that important, but keep you from, is a term that people have been arguing about for a long time. Does that mean that they will have deliverance from, or that they will have safekeeping in? Does it mean that they will be removed completely from the tribulation, or does it mean that God will protect them while they're in the midst of that tribulation. And this has been going on for generations. People trying to understand what it means. Because some claim that this is speaking of the rapture of the church, which is another thing we'll talk a lot more about later in Revelation. That the church in Philadelphia and the church worldwide will be caught up with Christ, and so they will not endure any part of the tribulation because they will be gone and in heaven already. Others believe that the church will be on the earth during the tribulation, but that they will be protected from the evils of the tribulation so that they can continue to witness to the world. Now, this is one of the things in Revelation that people feel very, very, very strongly about. There are churches that I have worked in that if I even said there's a chance that the church will still be on the earth during the tribulation, they would scream, heresy, get out. But this is a real like discussion that's been going on for generations. And we don't fully know. And we're going to dive, again, I hope that this whets your appetite a little bit and you'll come back to hear more because we're going to get way more into this, but I can't talk about it all day long today. Because I have books in my office, books, 400, 500 page books that are just trying to understand this idea of what does the tribulation look like? And is it pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib and all those sorts of things. We'll dive into that later. But this, I want you to see that this is a really important idea, but I also want you to see, regardless of what the answer to that question is, the answer is, Jesus, is, Jesus promises this church, this faithful church, that the tribulation will not fall upon them. Either they will be absent or they will be protected. But so often we, we look at this and we say, well, man, if we're there in the tribulation, like that's going to be awful. Yes, it will be awful for the world, but if you are a faithful follower of Christ, he has you in his hands and you will be okay. And So if we do live in the generation that is going to see the end times come, we do not need to live in fear because Christ promises those who are faithful to him that he will keep them. That's an amazing promise. This whole letter is just amazing promises to a church of people that are faithful to him. In verse 11, he tells Philadelphia that he's coming soon. And what he means by that is imminently. It can happen at any moment. The blink of an eye, like a thief in the night, all those terms, he's coming soon. And in the previous letters that he's written in Revelation, he talks about coming, but in each of those letters, it's an ultimatum. With Ephesus, he said, I will come and I will remove your lampstand, meaning I will remove your light from the kingdom. With Pergamum, he says, I will come and I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And then with Sardis, he says, I will come like a thief in the night. You'll never see it coming. But with Philadelphia, when he says, I will come soon, it's a promise. It's not a threat. He's saying, I will come soon and I will deliver these blessings that I am promising you. And then in verse twelve, it goes back to some of the language that he's been using throughout Revelation so far. He speaks to the overcomers and to the conquerors, to those who remain faithful in faith, and he makes another full, full fourfold promise to those who overcome, to those who remain faithful and do not fall into the ways of this world, who remain faithful to their faith in Christ. He makes this fourfold promise: one, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. Pillars are erected to bring honor to people. And they bring stability. And they hold up weight. Imagine how meaningful that is to you if you are part of the church at Philadelphia and your entire world is unstable. And you live in this insecure world where you're afraid to even be in the city And then Jesus says, I will make you a pillar. I will give you stability and power and might. Two, I will write on him the name of my God. This represents ownership. My first thought, I don't mean my first thought is the movie Toy Story. When Andy writes Andy with a backward N on the feet of all of his toys. And I, I imagine that, it's silly, but I imagine God grabbing me, flipping me upside down, Yahweh on the bottom of my foot. That would be a great tattoo idea, actually. Okay. <laughs> Just thought of that. Want to see my tattoo? <laughs> Three, that they will receive the name of the city of my God. This speaks of their citizenship. In a world where Roman citizenship means everything to people because it gives them tremendous blessings, tremendous protection. Jesus says, Roman citizenship is one thing, but I will give you citizenship in the kingdom of God. And you will have security like you cannot imagine. And then four, part four, of this fourfold blessing. He says, and I will write my own new name on them. This is something that's come up a couple times in Revelation already. We don't know exactly what it means, but it seems that Revelation tells us that Jesus is, in the fullness of his new kingdom has a new name for himself that nobody knows. That's a cool idea. I can't wrap my brain completely around it, but there's some name of Christ that represents his fullness in deity, the fully glorified Christ. There's some new name that he is going to give to us as his followers, as his children, that represents his full divine glory. And when that time comes, we will have the security of having his name, citizenship in his kingdom, ownership by God himself. Those are incredible promises that God gives to those who are faithful. And in verse 13, he ends it like he has all of the other letters. He says, The Holy Spirit of God is speaking. You better listen up. I love that ending to each of these letters. As the Spirit of God is speaking, it's time for you to listen. Philadelphia is the church in Revelation that every church should desire to be like. Tim, you can bring your worship team back up. This church is marked by faithfulness, and they are marked by the fact that they have not denied the name of Jesus in order to fit into the world. It's funny, I think about this idea of like, Christians wanting to fit into the world all the time. It's so funny because a lot of times you hear Christians talk about how broken the world is, how messed up the world is, how we don't want to be anything like the world, but then at the same time, we struggle with wanting to just kind of fit nice and neatly into the world so that we don't look weird. Yet the more we think about the world, the more we should be saying, I don't want to fit in with that world, but it's a struggle for us. And I'm sure that this church in Philadelphia, even though they have been faithful, I'm sure every day that they are struggling, like, if if I just gave in a little bit, I could just fly under the radar some more. If I just did this one thing, then, then I could do these things and they struggle with that and yet they have remained faithful and Jesus has said I see you I see your deeds I see what you're doing and you have been faithful and I will give you these mighty blessings because of your faithfulness. What an amazing promise that a little church can hear the words of Jesus himself saying I'm going to bless you. My prayer is that Alliance Fellowship would be more and more like the church of Philadelphia. A church that would bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. A church that is marked by our faithfulness to his word and to his name. I hope that that's what you desire as a church so that one day when that time comes, whether it's in this generation or the next or the next, we will see the fulfillment of all these promises and we will see the faithfulness of God, we thank you so much for your word. Again, I pray that you would help us as this small church that we still have mighty power because we're seeking to be faithful to you and your word in your name. Would you grant us the ability to be strong in the midst of trials, to not give in to the powers of this world, to not desire to be like this world, but help us to desire to be your faithful children. God, would you bless us today, and more importantly, would we bless you. In your name we pray.